take your newsletter and uh, front page, bottom right, is our scripture verse that is our theme for the year. Let's read that together, where it, where it says focus, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let your focus be on Jesus. Press on. Bible text for today's message comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. If you have your Bible or your Bible app or the Pew Bible in front of you, uh, follow along as I read. I'm reading from the New International Version. You may have something else. Uh, Just follow along, beginning at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Everything in life has a cost. Everything. Want to have a baby? Pay the doctors and hospitals. Then pay for the nursery makeover at the house. Pay for the pregnancy pictures, right? The maternity clothes. The newborn pictures. The pediatrician. Got to take care of the pediatricians. The diapers the ever-changing wardrobe, the toys, the Christmas presents, the sports participation fees, the haircuts, the school necessities, the Lego League fee, the iPads, the computers, the phones, the birthday parties, every year. Bigger and better, right? The life insurance policy, the car insurance, the graduation party, the college tuition, the cars. Yes, plural, they'll wreck one. (laughs) The wedding, 
the baby shower, the help with the bills when the kids are short on funds. How many can say an amen? (laughs) Grandchildren, and believe me, they're going to cost you. You, you get the idea? Want to go to a movie? Buy a ticket online. The gas to get to the theater. The 20 bucks for the 76 cents worth of popcorn and pop. <laughs> Trade two to three hours of producting time to s- sit in the theater. Everything has a cost. Want to take a Sunday drive today? Buy a car. Kind of hard to have the Sunday drive without the car. Put the gas and oil in. Pay the insurance, the sales tax, the license fee. And you probably need a few bucks in your pocket for one of those restaurants that you're going to pass. Everything has a cost. Everything. You get the idea? Everything except grace. Grace doesn't have a cost for you and me. Jesus will forgive you the moment you ask. But the only reason it is free to you is that someone else paid the bill. Jesus paid the bill. So it isn't free either, is it? There's a cost to everything. Jesus gave his life for you. Then there is this cross. You have to pick it up and carry it. You have to pay the cost of adjusting your life to the ways and the will of God. There's a cost of being a disciple. It says so right here in the heading of my Bible, right between verses 24 and 25 in a larger font and in italics. The cost of being a disciple. There's a cost for everything. This is one of the most, or more, and I wouldn't say most, one of the more challenging passages in the Bible. The words at the beginning of this passage are troubling. Think about them again. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. We read that verse and something on our brain goes, wait a minute. This doesn't add up. Hate? God says we have to hate? That doesn't just seem right. The scriptures tell us that we're known as Christians because we have love. Jesus gives a statement that's called the great commandment where he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So do do your neighbors get better treatment than your family if you become a Christian? You love them, but you hate your family? What in the world is Jesus saying to us? 
How do you compare that verse in Luke chapter 14 with Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Oh, now it's not just your neighbors that get better treatment than your family. It's your enemy gets better treatment than your family because you're to love them, but hate your mother and your father your brother and sister, your children. What's up with the Bible? It's challenging. My personal Bible reading this morning was from the book of Proverbs. And even in in Solomon's day, there was wisdom given about being people of love. I read this this morning. All the way back to King Solomon. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. How does that add up with Luke 14? Where Jesus says you've got to hate your family or you cannot be my disciple. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. And yet this feels like a contradiction, doesn't it? So how do we explain it? My first thought is a translation error. You know, the Bible wasn't given in English first. (laughs) So maybe this is a translation error. So I looked up the Greek word for hate. It's it's, uh, this word, meseo. Maseo. The definition of that is that it comes from the primary root word, misos. Do you know what misos means? Hatred. <coughs> well, it's not a translation error. So that word means to detest, by extension, to love less, to be hateful. That's what misos means. So I'm still here trying to figure out what's going on. All the way through the Bible, God tells us to be people of love. And yet here he says, don't love your family or you can't be my disciple. Not even just not love them, hate them. Not a translation error, that isn't the answer. Well, next thought, maybe God didn't intend for this to be in the Bible. Maybe Luke miswrote But no. As Peter said, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Luke didn't miss it because all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture has the the finger of God bringing it to life. He used human personalities to to write it down so it could be preserved for us. But behind this sacred book is the finger of God giving us truth and wisdom, showing us the way to life. So I'm still stuck. How about you? How do we measure this? 
together. Is the Bible inaccurate? Is it untrustworthy? I don't think so. There has to be an explanation. And I started this week as I'm studying this, trying to figure out what are the other explanations. And I finally decided I just wanted to talk about one. Maybe it's the easiest way. And most often, the way to interpret the Bible, the Bible, when you come on these kinds of things that seem to be challenging, is just look for the simplest answer, the easiest answer. What's the easiest answer? Well, my Bible teacher in seminary might not have said this is the easiest answer, but it's the easiest one for me. Maybe it'll be the easiest one for you. Maybe the easiest explanation is that Jesus is using extreme language just to make a point. Maybe he doesn't really want us to hate our spouse, our father and mother, our children. But he has to say it in a way that it gets our attention so he can drive home a point. And here's the point. Until followers of Jesus make him first priority, we have really not begun to follow him. He has to be first priority. So how do we begin to understand that and put that in our brain? Thinking about the easiest way to make sense of what seems like a contradiction in the Bible. And I thought of Bill Bright. Many of you know that name. Bill's now in heaven, but he was a great leader of the church for a very long time in North America. Started an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. Was a businessman. Never really was a pastor. But he led millions of people to the Lord. His organization now is called Crew. Maybe you've heard of Crew. One of the publications he made a long time ago was a little simple booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. In the end of that, he drew some pictures that maybe help us understand what Jesus is talking about here in Luke chapter 14. And and, uh, I'm going to do some artwork. I promise it won't be pretty. If you want pretty artwork, she's sitting back there in the corner and she could do this a whole lot better than me. But here goes. Let's see if I can actually draw a circle. I'm guessing not. Well, close enough that you know what it is, right? (laughs) This represents you. And as you think about you, I'm just going to put a little chair here in the center. Because that's the command center of your life. That little chair where the commander of your life sits. And until we come to Jesus... Who sits in that chair? You do. Self. I know it looks like an S-H, Sterling Heights, but it's really a chair with an S that represents self. And Jesus is out here. Can you see the cross? Where's my thing in the way? The cross. Jesus is out here. And here you are sitting on the command center of your life and all of your interests represented by dots, things that are going on in your life, things you're orchestrating, taking care of, watching over, bigger importance, smaller importance, just orchestrating life, living day to day, feeling good and happy. 
And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit begins to talk to you. He begins to speak to you. And you begin to think about God and who he is and what he's about. And you make a decision. And, and you make a decision that I need God in my life. And the way to have God in my life is through Jesus, who is himself God. One of the persons of the Godhead, if you want me to use really churchy language. And so we make a decision to live for him. And we invite Jesus into our What's wrong with that picture? He's in your life, but who's directing your life? Yourself. And that's what a lot of us try to do. We try to keep control of our life, sit in the command chair. Plan out our priorities, keep our to-do lists, just manage them exactly the way we want them. And we've invited Jesus in, so when we get that all squared away in our our desires and our thinking, we, we, we stop and we think, okay, Jesus is with me. Jesus, help me do what I want to do. Doesn't work. That doesn't work. That's not the kind of life Jesus calls us to. It's it's better than him not being there at all. I'll grant you that. But it's still not where we need to be. I think when Jesus is saying to us, if you do not hate your father and mother, your spouse, your children, I think he's just taking an exaggerated way of saying, here's what we have to do. We have to... Change this order all around. We have to change this. Who is in the command chair? Jesus. Jesus. He's in our life. And now our interests, our activities become controlled, commanded, orchestrated by the new commander. As everything in our life begins pointing to him. I know, not the best artwork, but you get the idea. We move from the self-directed life to the Christ-directed life. I think that's what Jesus means when he says, hate your family. Uh, you know, when you, when you compare the scripture, and, and this is how you interpret scripture, you don't just take one little passage and, and make your, your whole teaching out of that. You compare it with the whole rest of the Bible. And the overwhelming preponderance of evidence in the Bible is that God wants us to be people of love. So we know he doesn't really say, hate your family. He's using it as an exaggerated way to get our attention to say, until you give me the first priority in your life, until you let me be the commander, the director, the leader of your life, you cannot be my disciple. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? 
Now, we're not going to ask for show and tell, but I, threw, I drew three different circles. Which one are you? No need to say. No need to raise your hand. I wouldn't do that to you. It might be embarrassing. But which circle represents your life with Christ? Is he not even in it? You've never made him your Savior and Lord? Or have you said, well, Jesus, I think I like you. Why don't you come along and help me out with the things I want to do? Or have you really said, I surrender. I'm getting out of the chair. I'm leaving the throne, the command center of my life, and I'm going to let you direct my life. Does that make sense? think I'm even close to interpreting it right? Don't answer if you don't. (laughs) But I think that's the message Jesus is trying to get through to us today. That there is a cost to being a disciple. It's not a monetary one. Well, first, it's not. We'll come back to that in a moment. But he wants to be the person whom you orient your life around. Not that you ask Jesus to orient his life around your will, your wishes, your ways. He wants to be the leader of your life. There are many people in this room who would be able to stand up and give testimony and say that the decision to take myself off of the command chair of my life and let Christ sit there has been the wisest decision I've ever made in my life. Many people in this room would give that testimony if I gave you the opportunity. But until you do that, that's a hard step. It's hard to say, Okay, I give up the control of my life. But Jesus says it's a necessary step. Because until you do that, you cannot be my disciple. Well, this troubling teaching suddenly became a hard teaching, didn't it? I acknowledge that this isn't easy. I acknowledge that there are still more days than I would care to admit that, that I push him away from here and sneak myself back up there until the Holy Spirit's convicting me enough that I can get reoriented again. But I think that's what Jesus wants from us. A life that is his used for his purposes, used for his glory, used for his honor and his praise, used for his work in the world, used for his goodness. And it doesn't mean that you give up every good thing you enjoy in your life. It doesn't mean that. It might feel like that. But it won't be that way. So, until you make that exchange, Jesus says you can't be my disciple. Okay, we got it all figured out now, right? 
Except there's still one more little troubling word in this passage from Luke 14. Actually, there's more than one, but there's one right now staring us in the face. Because we read that verse that says, unless you hate family, you know, goes on and says, you cannot be my disciple. What's the next word? And. And. You mean, that's not enough? (laughs) Apparently not. And so this troubling teaching becomes less troubling, but it becomes hard. And now it becomes harder. Because Jesus says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So it's not just about this transaction of letting him be in the command chair. It's picking up a cross. Every Holy Week in the Philippines, this is literally lived out by a a man. Maybe it's more than one man. When he picks up the cross and he walks to a place in the city where he lives and he lays the cross down and he places himself upon the cross and someone comes and nails him to the cross. You've probably seen that for years in the news. It's reenacted by this gentleman. Is that what it means to pick up a cross? Probably not. However, when we think about the cross, we recognize that it's a symbol of sacrifice. Jesus gave his life on the cross. He gave up his will. You you remember when he was in the garden, he said, Lord, if, if it's possible, let this trial pass from me. He used the word cup, or at least the old King James language uses the word cup. Let this cup pass from me. But we can't. Because as disciples of Jesus Christ, we're commanded, not just invited, but commanded to pick up a cross of sacrifice and carry it. And I can't tell you what that sacrifice looks like because it's different for every one of us. But there will be sacrifices to follow Christ. The cross is a cross of suffering, pain, agony. It's not just a beautiful little gold or silver piece on the chain around your neck. And I can't tell you what your suffering would be to follow Christ. But I can tell you, you'll have some. There's a cost. There really is a cost. Cross is a symbol of death. It's a sign of the mo- one of the most torturous means of execution ever designed by men by evil and so what's the cost let self die and let Christ be on the throne 
no matter what other costs there might be, it's at least that cost. Suffering, sacrifice, death. Those aren't pleasant words to us. Uh, We don't particularly like those words, do we? We just kind of like to erase those. They cost us something. We prefer grace and love and forgiveness. They're warm and cuddly. Can't we just have that part of it, Jesus, and leave the other part out? They're easy. They don't cost much, at least not of us. But they cost Jesus everything. We just want enough of Jesus to help us through our days. Let's not get into the giving up control stuff. We want to be in charge. We want to dictate to Jesus what is acceptable and what's not. We want our plans and what is agreeable to us. We want to be in the command center. When Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple... It's all about this transaction of moving self off the throne. I've got to figure out what, I'm, what movement I make to cause that scratch. I haven't figured it out yet. But it has something to do with doing this. We don't want this give up decision-making authority stuff in our life. We want to hang on to that. But not so fast. There is still a cross. We get caught up in arguments about the color of the paint in the ladies' restroom at the church. That's our cost. That's our suffering. We debate whether or not we'll have an Easter egg hunt for the children in the community. And whether we want to pay for that or not. Whether we want to do the work to make it happen or not. We, we have to put up with music that's not our preference or a sermon on tithing. My goodness, how could the pastor do that to us? We have the endless calls from Pastor TJ about more children's ministry volunteers. When will it end? And we think that's our cost. The 2016 World Watch List came across my desk this week. Perfect timing. It ranks the top 50 countries in the world where Christians face the most severe persecution for their faith. I want to read some things that were just articles related to that that I came across this week. As we think about who's in charge, the cost-benefit analysis of that that some of you are making, and a cross, and whether we want to carry a cross or not, whether we want to live for Christ or not. I'm just reading some articles I found. The Islamic State has been filling the headlines for a long time, filling the hearts of many people in the Middle East with fear. But in the midst of this, the church in the Middle East is showing the love of Christ to those who fled their homes. Muslims in the Middle East are turning to Jesus in unprecedented numbers. Before the war, it was rare that a Muslim would become a follower of Christ. But the war has changed everything. 
everything. According to one Christian worker of a church in Lebanon, many new converts say they had their doubts about Islam even before they were converted. And the worker says that doubt is many times the key to change. And the writer goes on to tell us the story of one family. He's changed the names for their safety. Amir, Rasha, and their two children who fled from Homs. You've heard Homs, the city Homs, in the news for several years now. It says, about three months ago, I was given a vision of Jesus Christ, Rasha says. I was sleeping, and all of a sudden, I saw Jesus Christ in white. He said, I am Christ. You will have a beautiful daughter. I was eight months pregnant, she said. And a month later, we received our beautiful daughter. At about the same time, the husband had a dream, too. I saw Jesus Christ. He was dressed in white. He said to me, I am your Savior. You will follow me. Both Amir and Rasha made the bold decision to follow Jesus after those dreams. We decided to follow him. We named our baby Christina. Get it? Christina. Christ. We left our old Islamic customs. Amir stopped going to the mosque, but Russia... Rasha still dresses as a Muslim woman with her head covered by a veil. Our clan is very big. We're afraid now. They might kill us. Amir continues. Our family knows we are Christians now. Becoming a Christian is for them the same as if I had destroyed the Kaaba in Saudi Arabia Shaban will let me know if I ruin that word later. It is because we walked in the darkness and are now in the light. I want to protect my family. Because of the danger, they didn't want to continue living where they were, where many Muslims live. With her soft and sad voice, Rasha says, we now have no fixed place to live. We go from place place. And then my mind rings, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Amir used to work as a carpenter in Syria. Now he says, I have no work in Lebanon. Our financial situation is bad. Now because we are Christians, others don't want to help us. The church is helping as much as possible. Gesturing with their hands and faces, they say they don't know what the future will bring. The most important thing is that we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. He will save us. We regularly pray to the Lord. And we freely worship Him. And He protects us. God is with us. God will resolve our situation. I don't have time for the other story. The other story is similar. Family comes to Christ and they leave their home knowing that if their family finds them, they will kill them. 
and we quibble over whether we want to make this transaction and orient our life around Jesus. The way of the cross is a way of suffering, pain, and death. Being a follower of Jesus isn't always easy. But it's the way to life, hope, and joy. Have you made that simple transaction? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? (laughs) The cross is the instrument of salvation. It just is. And Jesus reminds us that those of us who do not give up everything cannot be his disciples. So we're called to carry the cross, no matter the cost. So that those far from God can be brought to his family. That's the salt part of the passage I read for you. We live out the truth of the Apostle Paul, who said to the church in Galatia, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who gave himself for me. That brings us to an idea we talked about a few weeks ago, a life of full devotion to Christ. That's the picture of a life fully devoted to Christ. If I were to draw continuum up here, on the left side, there's no devotion to Christ. On the right side, there's full devotion to Christ. Where are you? Where are you? I want you to take the hymnal that's in front of you. I want you to turn it to page 474. It's an old hymn. It's a great hymn. Take up the cross and follow me, I heard the Master say. I give my life to ransom me. Surrender you're all today. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loved me so.